Good evening, everyone. And um, first, let me say, say Happy New Year. Happy New Year to everyone. Did y'all have a good New Year? You at home, if you had a good New Year, go ahead and type out, I had a great New Year. New Year celebration. You know, I can't believe it's 2024 already. I mean, this, this year, 2024, 40 years ago, 1984, in the fall, I was entering my senior year of high school. It's just like the years just fly by, right? <laughs> they fly by. How about those New Year's resolutions, anyone? No, not a fan. I mean, it's good to set goals. I mean, I've set, I've set some goals. Um, am I going to hit them all? Probably not, but, you know, aim for the stars, hit the moon, you know, dream big. Swing for the fences, I think that's what they say. But um, tonight isn't really a message about New Year's resolution. I mean, it is a good idea that if you're going to say, I'm not going to do this or I'm not going to do this, then at least, you know, replace it with something positive. You know, instead of just saying, I'm not going to eat as much junk food or I'm not going to eat as much fast food, then at least make the time to plan out a meal that's going to be healthy. Um, if you say, I'm not going to use social media excessively, um, you know, make sure you plan some things in your day um, to do that are, you know, that are good, that you, that you want to accomplish. Otherwise, if you just say, I won't do this and won't do that, and there's this vacuum, you know, it's like, feed me, feed me, you know, and you, you want to put something in there, but you don't. So it's not a matter of um, you don't want to do something. It's, it's a matter of uh, you need to displace it with something positive. Um, you don't need more, you need more than an omission. Uh, you need a replacement. And you need more than a I won't. You need a I will. And that's sort of the way it is with repentance. Repentance just simply means to turn around. It's, it's wanting to change. And you have to want to change and be committed to change if any change is going to take place. And that's what we mean by repent, is to turn around. So, yeah, even though I'm not really big on New Year's resolutions, if you do want to change, you have to be intentional. And you can't just say no to something without saying yes to something else. Or yes to something without saying no to something else. And that's what it takes to repent. It's to turn around to say, God, no more of this. I'm going to go this way. I want to follow you. So tonight I want to talk about confession and forgiveness. Confession and forgiveness. It, it all begins with humility. Humility and a willingness to change. And how confession and forgiveness together, uh, they kind of, as my title denotes, offer us a clean slate before God. You know, in this new year, we're hoping to start with a clean slate, right? Old things have passed. we got a clean slate. We're going to start fresh. We're going to get things done. Well, as I mentioned humility before, it's, it's really where confession begins. Uh, it's basically not holding yourself too highly. You know, humility isn't a false humility that just, you know, tries to put yourself down and, you know, thinks that you're, you know, worthless and crummy. But it's having a right relationship between you and God and others. It's not thinking too highly of yourself. Thomas Kempis said this, He is truly great who has great charity. He is truly great 
who is little in his own eyes and makes nothing of the highest honor. He is truly wise who looks upon all earthly things as folly that he may gain Christ. He who does God's will and renounces his own is truly very learned. Tonight I want to make two points. Confession follows humility and forgiveness follows confession. Let's begin with the former. Confession follows humility. It's number one. Turning to Luke 18, 9 through 14, Jesus gives a parable that really strikes at the heart of humility. It says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer, I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers, and I'm certainly not like that mm, tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Leave the last portion of that scripture on the screen, and let's read that together. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is where it begins. Confession follows humility. Now, we all recognize the importance of confession. It's how we approach God. We approach him humbly. We don't come up to God as though we're entitled. There's enough entitlement going around. We're not entitled for anything, okay? Everything we are, everything we have is because of God. And we have to humbly accept that and go to him humbly. We need to confess our sins that he would forgive us our sins. But in order to come to him Asking for confession, we have to do it humbly. You know, we just celebrated the birth of our Savior this last week on Christmas, and talk about humility. I mean, Jesus humbled himself to be born as a human. And not only to be born as a human, but as a baby human. I mean, he could have just come down at a lightning bolt and already been a grown man, and that had been cool. But he chose to come to earth, not just as mere flesh and bones, but to be born, to be vulnerable, to be this helpless, frail infant. The God of the universe. That's the ultimate in humility. I mean, just taking on human flesh would be humility enough. But he came as a baby. And furthermore, he humbled himself to die as a human. Not only to be human, but to die as a human in our place as the substitution and punishment for the sins of all the world. Look at Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Very familiar passage, but this is the epitome of humility. Jesus, who is God, humbling himself as a man and then dying for our sins. 
beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the gospel. Jesus coming to die, born to die, and in our place. You know, Jesus' birth that we celebrate at Christmas is culminated in his death and resurrection that we celebrate on Good Friday and Easter. But Christmas is more than lights and presents and figgy pudding, whatever that is. What the heck is figgy pudding? Maybe it's the stuff they put in fruitcake, I don't know. <laughs> um, seriously, Christmas is about Christ's birth making the way for us to have rebirth. Christmas is about Christ's birth making the way for us to have rebirth. Since Jesus has paid the price for our sins on the cross with his own blood, we can ask for forgiveness. That's why, that's how. We can ask cleansed of all our sins and accept him as our Lord and Savior and be born again. Because Christ was born as a baby, we can be born again as Christians. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. When anyone is in Christ, it is a whole new world. The old things are gone, and suddenly everything is new. I love that. The old things are gone. Suddenly everything is new. It's new birth. Jesus is born. We have new birth. A fresh start. Uh, well, like my message says, a clean slate. I love a clean slate. All of us are familiar with the chalkboard, right? It was at the, the front of every classroom that I grew up. And um, I can remember in elementary school, some, sometimes I'd be one of the very privileged and chosen to uh, wash, the, the wash, wash the chalkboard after class or, um, or be chosen with someone else to go outside and, and bang the erasers on the side of the church wall, excuse me, of the school wall. Imagine, why we, why we feel so privileged doing work like that? But it was like, ooh, we get to, you know. Anyway, of course, prior to the chalkboards used in the 1970s when I was in elementary school, um, students used to own their own personal slate. And we're talking about a, a rock, <laughs> a slate stone, flat stone, you know, framed in wood or, you know, or something just to keep their hands from getting cut up from the sharp edges. Uh, fun fact, uh, a word of uh, wiki, if you will, um, evidence suggests that it was used in the 16th and 17th centuries as slate quarreling in Wales expanded, its usage came into wide usage beginning in the later 18th century. Y'all feel ready for trivial pursuit now. But um, seriously, on and on, you know, these slates were used for, 
everything from keeping records on a boat log to businesses and, of course, in schoolhouses. And I had uh, a photo of an uh, early American slate used in schools. But you're way ahead of me right now. Once something was written on a slate, it could be erased. It's where the phrase, wipe the slate clean, comes from. Likewise, when we confess our sins before God, we are asking for a clean slate. We confess our sins before God, we're asking for a clean slate. We pray as David did, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Now, when we washed the chalkboards in elementary school, they weren't white, but, um, but you get the picture. He goes on to say in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. You know, that cleansing is available to all of us. You know, King David, who wrote Psalm 51, understood that God alone could cleanse him and, and wash him from his sin. But long before the softer sticks of chalk that we use later and even today, um, students would use basically um, a stone pencil, if you will, and they would go on the sides of the school, try to sharpen it, and they didn't have these little white pieces of chalk. And using that piece of slate or shale as a pencil uh, created two inherent problems. The first was, as you're scratching stone on stone, you got this shrieking high pitch scratching sound like, like nails on a chalkboard. Can you imagine having to endure that every day? Mm-mm. Um, second, and more pronounced, was the fact that the stone pencil had a, had a tendency to scratch the surface of the slate tablet. And although the dust, if you will, of, of the strokes could be erased with the piece of woolen cloth that they kept with them, it could still leave evidence behind of what was written there before it was erased. So if a child wrote something incorrectly, he could erase it and write it again without mistakes. And now the teacher would come and observe the tablet, and even though she could see evidence of the mistake in the scratches on the tablet, she would look beyond that and see the corrected answer. And she would not hold the former scratches against him. See, the old was gone. The slate was essentially clean. Even though there was evidence of a prior mistake, she didn't hold it against him because it had been erased. And likewise, God does not hold our sins against us. Going back to David's prayer in Psalm 51, <clears throat> we read how David pleads with the Lord to cleanse him from his sin. Now, this particular sin of which he writes is the sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then having her husband murdered in battle. Did God forgive David? Yes, he did. The slate was clean. Were there still consequences? Yes, there were. The scratch marks in David's slate plagued him and his family for the rest of his life. But this sort of helped me understand passages in Scripture where God says that he will forget our sins. I used to be puzzled 
how is God omniscient, all-knowing, and forget something? If you forget something, you don't know it, and that contradicts all-knowing. For instance, in Isaiah 43, he says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Another translation says, I will remember your sins no more. And then in Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, he, that's Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. You see, Jesus established a new covenant with his people. So God, in essence, is saying that because of Jesus, he's erased the sins from our slate. And he looks past and doesn't hold against us the scratch marks made prior. Does he know that they're there? Yes, he knows they're there, but he doesn't bring them up again. He doesn't hold us, hold them against us. He doesn't say, yeah, you think you're so good. Yeah, but you remember when you did this? You remember when you did this? He doesn't do that. And how, how, how encouraging is that when somebody reminds you of something you did wrong? They want to encourage you for what you've done right. Now, if you do something wrong right now, then you need correction that's different. But if they're always going to be Convict, con, condemning you and convicting you of something past, especially something that you've already apologized for, you've already corrected, you've already been forgiven for, that, that there's no profit in bringing that up again. And Jesus doesn't do that. So then, there's a question. Does Jesus punish us for sinning? Well, not in the sense that you might think. Honestly, sin is its own punishment. For sin separates us from God. You've heard pastors say it over and over from the pulpit, you know, fear sin. Don't fear the devil. God's got the devil on a short leash. The devil can't touch you. You're God's child. You're God's son. You're God's daughter. He can tempt you to do wrong, but he can't touch you. But fear sin. Because once you've given in to temptation and you've sinned, that is where you've yielded. And that begins to separate you from God. So, God doesn't punish us, but the Bible does promise in Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it means our sins were nailed to the cross with Jesus. Jesus was condemned in our place where we should have been because of our sins. Jesus took that punishment that we deserved upon himself. He was condemned so that we wouldn't have to be. And now that we've accepted him as our savior, God no longer condemns us. We don't stop at 8-1 though. Because it's nice to say, no condemnation, great, I got off scot-free. Well, you don't just stay there. Because in verse 2, it says this, 
Actually, let's go back to verse, verse 1. Let's read 1 and 2 together. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. See, there's a speak, however, because, because we belong to him, verse 2 continues, we have the power of the Holy Spirit who frees us from the power of sin and death. So guess what? No excuses. When we willfully sin, we are choosing to ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit who warns us not to sin in the first place. And if we do go ahead and sin anyway, well, it's that same voice of the Holy Spirit who first warned us when we said, talk to the hand, Holy Spirit. You know, now the Holy Spirit convicts us convicts us of the sin that we willfully pursued anyway. And that conviction ought to lead us to humility. Remember we began with humility? That conviction leads us to humility to come before God and confess our sin. So now we've come full circle. We recognize that we need to confess our sin. We recognize that we need to come to God humbly to confess our sin. And if we have sinned, what is going to lead us to that place where we come before God? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, which leads us to humility, which draws us to God for confession. Now, I should say this also, because I say God doesn't punish us, in the sense of condemning us, we're not condemned. Romans 8, 1 assures us of that. However, you knew there was a however. However, if we go on continually ignoring the Holy Spirit by repeatedly sinning before God, then we should expect a measure of discipline. And that discipline has the intent to cause us to repent and return to the Lord. That gets us back to the place where we start over again, where we can approach him with humility, confess our sins, and ask for forgiveness. So repeated sin invites divine discipline. It invites divine discipline. Look at Hebrews 12, 7 to 11. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Now, granted, you don't want to get to that point, but take heart. If you do find yourself the recipient of God's discipline, it's because he loves you. 
And yes, even in your sinful state, he still loves you as you are. But he loves you too much that you should stay sinful as you are. You could be in the midst of sin, be doing something you ought not be doing, be with someone you shouldn't be with, be at a place you ought not to be, and God still loves you as you are. But he doesn't want you to stay that way. He loves you far too much to say, all right, if that's what you want, go for it. No, he's going to discipline you in such a way that to get your attention and say, hey, I love you. You know, until that conviction draws you to him in humility. Sometimes that discipline can seem harsh, but it has the purpose of bringing you back to a right relationship. Now, how many, don't raise your hands, how many ever received, um, shall we say, corporal punishment? Yeah, how, how many heard your father say, this is going to hurt you a lot more than it hurts me? And at the time, you're thinking, yeah, right. <laughs> but then I look up at Jesus carrying the cross to Calvary, and as he's being nailed to that cross, he says, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. If that mental picture doesn't humble you, and it's that humility that leads to confession. So finally, forgiveness then follows confession. Confession leads to forgiveness. It says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. What a promise. It's not automatic. It doesn't just kind of happen like, okay, we sin, oh, but we know that God, he died on the cross. I'm, I'm good, I'm good. No, you still have to come to him humbly. You still have to confess your sins. You still have to ask for forgiveness. But this promise says, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Think of that eraser going over that slate. Give us a clean slate. Amen. That's good news. You know, I often, you know, thought about, okay, well, all right, I did wrong, but gosh, I don't want to go back again. How many times do I have to? This is embarrassing. God, I've already done this so many times. You must be sick of me asking. I don't want to. Okay. And you know, it's just like, you almost want to just give up. Say, you know what? It's easier just to live in my sin than just keep crawling back to God. And, you know, it's like, I know, I know. But we should never give up. I wrote this down. We should never grow weary of asking God for forgiveness because he never grows tired of forgiving us when we ask. 
We should never grow weary of asking God for forgiveness. Don't give up. Know in your heart that God never grows tired. He never grows weary of forgiving us when we ask. He doesn't say, oh, not you again. No, he's, he wants to forgive us. You know, he doesn't want to say, all right, well, Mark, this is going to cost you. You don't think I'm going to let you off this easy this time. You know, no, he, he wants to forgive us. He wants a right relationship with us. But we have to want that ourselves. It's sort of like going to a diner. You know, when you go to a diner, you sit down, and you're asked, um, what would you like? And you're hungry, and so you order, you know, um, I don't know, what's something that people like to eat? Just say something. Breakfast, you get this big plate of, of eggs and, and grits and bacon and sausage and all kinds of good stuff. And then it comes time to pay for that, and your server says, that's already been paid for. You're like, cool. Yeah, the, the, the chef who made it already paid that for you. Well, cool. But you have to ask for it. Now, if you knew that when you went to that diner, you could get free food for the asking, that'd be a place you'd want to go. But you had to ask for it. What brings you to the diner in the first place? You're hungry. God offers us more than free food. He offers us eternal life. And though it is free for us, it wasn't free for him. He paid the ultimate price on the cross. He paid the, the bill, so to speak. When, when he was on the cross, his final words were, it is finished. And translated into English, it's more like paid in full. He paid the price for our sin. Because he paid the price, we can come to him and ask for forgiveness, just like we can go to that diner and ask for food. Something that would satisfy our physical being, we can come to God to satisfy our spiritual being. But we're not going to go to that diner, even though the food is free, unless we're hungry. And we're not going to go to God unless we're hungry. Maybe some of us don't approach him as often as we ought because we're just not hungry. The food is free, but it's like, eh, I'm not hungry. And we deny our spiritual health spending time with God just as if we were to deny our physical health of food by not going to that diner, even though it's been paid for. Even though forgiveness has been paid for, we don't go to God because we're not hungry. We need a new hunger for God and humbly come before him so that our spiritual being, as well as our physical being, will live in a right relationship with him. I left you some growth work. Keep a humble heart before God and others. This is, this is primary, okay? 
And then two, make it a daily habit to ask God to search your heart and reveal any unconfessed sin. This is important because we're human beings. God knows that we make mistakes. God knows that we sin. And (laughs) I just thought of something. Um, Okay, so a Sunday school teacher um, asked the class, you know, was talking about sin and teaching the children about sin. Says, um, okay, how many know what sins of commission are? And um, little girl says, uh, those are the sins that you committed, right? That's correct. You should not commit to sin willfully, willingly. Now, who can tell me what sins of omission are? And the little boy raises his hand. Those are the sins that you haven't gotten around to doing yet? Um, no. <laughs> of course, we know the omission are things that you ought to have done but didn't, you know, so. But anyway, we're, we're frail human beings. God knows that. He knows we sin. That doesn't mean we, we don't try not to, but it also means that we need to ask God to say, God, I'm human. Did I do something today that I ought not? Search my heart, and if there's something wrong in me, let me know. You know, imagine having a a crystal, um, a little heart made of crystal. You know, probably some of you have that in your curio at home. And you can see everything that's inside of it. Open the lid, drop in a lump of coal, close it, and hold it up and pretend that no one sees the coal inside of it. Can't do it. I mean, it's, it's there. See, it's crystal clear. You can see that's the way God is with our heart. We can't hide anything from him. So number three, in the Lord's model prayer, we pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. Be sure to hold no unforgiveness toward anyone else. There's a whole other thing that we can talk about when it comes to uh, forgiveness to and for other people. Um, tonight was more about our relationship with God, but we shouldn't hold unforgiveness toward anyone else. It does say in Scripture, if you don't forgive your neighbor, then I won't forgive you. I mean, forgiveness is a serious thing. And one of the ways we are most like God is when we forgive others. Four, delight in the fact that God considers you his son or daughter worthy of conviction, or if necessary, discipline because of sin. Don't shun it. Embrace God. He loves you. Five, ask God daily for forgiveness and live in the power of the Holy Spirit to help you resist temptations to sin. The Holy Spirit lives and dwells with you as a Christian. He will warn you not to do something. He'll convict you if you didn't do it. And he may even be an agent of correction to bring you back to him. But know God loves you. God loves you. I've left some tips for goal setting and attaining uh, this new year, and maybe you'd like to chat about some of those um, after the broadcast. But let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Lord, we thank you that even though we're 
just frail human beings prone to sin, prone to wander. Lord, as the good shepherd, you always come after us. Lord, you said that you would not have not one perish. But Lord, you came and you died so that anyone, anyone who asks may be forgiven and accept you as their Savior and live with you for eternity. We thank you for that promise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.